0: This is a Pele Media Podcast. Welcome back to Jurassic Park Minute, everyone. Jurassic Park Minute is the fan podcast where we carefully explore the movie Jurassic Park minute by minute. I am Brady, and I am joined today by Mr. Ryan Hopped. Ryan is a paleontologist who is with us this week to uh, basically correct me on all of the uh, dinosaur names and how I am saying them wrong and have been for the entire course of the show. I've taken notes.
1: (laughs) Damn it. (laughs) (laughs) I really have. (laughs) Have you really? Yeah.
0: Well, for one.
1: There was only one that I thought was so egregious that I had to to write it down and just be like, nope. Please tell me it was Kyle and not me. I don't remember because it was early enough in the show that I couldn't quite tell your voices apart. I... Uh, one I'm of you said, ask. one of you said the early bird, Arco Petrix. And that is, that is not how that is Ar- okay, said. Okay, wait, what is it actually pronounced? And I'm, that
0: does not sound right at all, even just hearing it. What is the correct uh, pronunciation?
1: Archaeopteryx. Archaeopteryx. okay. It's not unreasonable for you to realize it's a silent P. <laughs> like, that's not a common <laughs> oh, silent letter in the middle of a word. Yeah. Um, it really comes from y- literally years of learning greek latin and other root words and so to recognize that the syllabic oh, yes. break should come at archaeo so for ancient and then pteryx for feather archaeopteryx yeah. so ancient feather i got you
0: i've actually had to learn uh make it a habit to preface everything i say with i could be wrong no or you, guys are, some... <laughs> you
1: guys are great by and large dude <laughs> For two non-paleontologists uh, taking on this movie, I am blown away by the depth and graciousness with which you handle the paleontological topics. Like, you guys legitimately do a really good job.
0: Oh, well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. I really do. Um, That's... Whoops. Uh, actually... One of the big benefits of the show has been, um, as it has been with the other Movies by Minutes shows that we've done, is, is relationships that we've developed with people that we've met through the show. And, uh, I've, you know, aside from you, there's been other paleontologists that I've been able to correspond with. And, um, and it's just great to – you know, this is a, a field that has always fascinated me and I've always wanted to go into paleontology ever since I was a little kid. I'm, I really regret having not, not done that. But uh, so to be able to like just kind of shoot the breeze with someone and talk about these things and these subjects is uh, is incredible, and it all comes from you know the show. So we've got a lot of cool stuff going on in this minute, and uh, one of one of those things is a cliff that seemingly appears out of nowhere, and depending on some. Uh, kind of fan-made blueprints or fan-made uh, schematics you can actually see an overhead view of where that cliff might actually be and we've had some people send in photographs of stills from the movie that show where that cliff actually actually is and you can't quite see it but i can almost kind of see where they're coming from what is your take on this mysterious cliff that the uh, that the t-rex is going to push the jeep over
1: yeah it's just an error like they just i mean not an error mm. an error makes it sound like they made a mistake i think they made a conscious decision to have the T-Rex come through the fence in a specific place, and then to use that break in the fence to stage a different moment of action later in the scene in a such a way... Like, it's all staged in a way where you don't really remember that it's that way. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, like, Dark Knight Rises. Maybe not the best Batman movie, but a serviceable Batman film. Okay. There's a scene in that movie where... Bane, having just robbed the stock exchange, which would close at like 4 p.m. at the latest. Yes, I know what you're talking about. Goes into a tunnel, Batman follows him, and when they come out, it's nighttime. Yeah. But you don't care because you're enjoying the movie in that moment, and this is the same thing. It's an error, but it's an error in service of an exciting moment in the story, so it's okay that it's an error. That's my take. Yeah,
0: yeah I know that's perfect. Uh, now I'll tell you what. I can understand how they go through the parking garage or whatever it is and come back out and it's nighttime outside. What I can't forgive is how the hell they snuck motorcycles into the stock exchange and then had them in there on the ready to pull the people out as hostages. Well, he's very cunning. Perfect. (laughs) Perfect response. (laughs) No, you're absolutely right, though, about the the, the cliff, whether it is, is there or not. It is there in service of the action and completely works. And it was a very long time before I ever stopped and questioned, hey, where... You know, right, exactly. Where did that cliff that? come from?
1: It's a very yeah. recent criticism that we've all had, but in in the way that it serves the story, it serves this great action set piece where Grant has to get Lex to safety, and you 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 know, as far as the end of this minute, Tim is dead. Like he's just gone. Mm-hmm. Like there's no yeah. way he survives what just whatever happened. <laughs> and then and then you know, like Grant has to repel which is an important part of doing science. I've had to repel multiple times in the name of science i'm it's, not i'm, I'm just not kidding brings... i have well uh, really yeah of course All right. well, go, go into this in, i'm, I'm interested i study sloths they live in trees you have to get up there it's, how high have you ever had to go uh oh, what's in, the highest you've had to go well as an as an undergraduate with uh less wisdom and experience <laughs> as i have now i did climb to the top of a redwood just barefoot and you're uh, kidding me free climbed yeah what? How yeah. high up is that? Yeah. I, I I don't know exactly. I know they're pretty damn high. but I mean, at least 100, 150 or so feet.
0: Jesus. Yeah. No fear of fights here.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, there was damn. a girl involved. She's attractive.
0: Yeah. So um, it's like, all right, I got to man up and uh, show how macho I am by climbing to the top of the Oh, she Apollo was ahead of me the, the whole world. climb.
1: I was just trying to keep up with her. Uh, <laughs> nice. the whole time I was like, should we be doing this? Maybe let's maybe not yeah. go down. I mean, the girl was worth it. We're married, but um, I know, right? <laughs> She's the best. Uh, I've also been part of fossil digs in caves that have required me to repel uh, really into the cave. There's, um, yeah, there is a cave in Wyoming called natural trap cave. And it's essentially this like hole in a kind of rolling rocky western terrain landscape it's in it's in kind of the the foothills of the Be- the western foothills of the Beartooth mountains and the idea of this fossil site is it's this hole in the ground that um, is kind of obscured by the topography enough that if you were running you wouldn't see it and so you'd fall in and you've fallen into this it's this big hole and the holes like I don't know, like the, the square footage of two or three SUVs parked side by side, you know, about that okay. big. The drop is about 70 feet from the ground to the bottom of the hole. And so there's just this pile of bones of animals that have fallen in over the hundreds of thousands of years what? that this hole has been exposed. And um, and you only, you only find animals that could have moved fast. And so you only find things Jesus. like horses and camels and cheetahs because there used to be cheetahs that lived in America. But these if you were in a, a high speed pursuit you know velociraptor style you might have just run straight into this hole and died.
0: Well Oop. I'm glad you were able to repel <laughs> oh it's so much <laughs> not fun fall dude. In.
1: So you fo- you repel in most of the way so you get you get down you know 60 65 feet and so you're just hovering above this like mound of dirt and bones but they don't want you to land on that because they don't want you to break anything. So once you get down about that low you just start swinging Dr. Grant <laughs> oh my style. God. To try yeah. to get over to the wall of the cave. And then there's somebody standing over there. And once you swing far enough, they just grab you by the boot <laughs> and hold you what? at an angle so you can finish rappelling down to the side of the pit. So you're not actually in the pit disturbing it's any of the fossils. just that
0: – wow. Okay. Yeah. It's so cool. I'm going to have to go check it out. So this is a moment in the film where uh, we really see – The T-Rex, I mean, she is just like, you know, desperate for food. She's got to find out what is in that little, what is down there screaming in this turned over car. And uh, we really just see, you know, this thing hunting its prey. Now, for a long time, there's been a debate as to whether or not T-Rex was a hunter or a scavenger. Where do you stand on that, on that debate?
1: Well, I mean, do do you own like pets? Do you have a dog or a cat?
0: Uh, I have, I don't currently, but I have growing up. We had a lot of dogs in the house.
1: So, I mean, we traditionally think of those animals as predators. What do they do if they found a dead thing, right? Pretty much. You know what I mean? I have a hard time seeing why the debate. It's clearly equipped to eat meat. If you look at the mouth of a T-Rex, it's one of the most impressive things that evolution has ever produced, in my opinion. It's a gigantic skull, clearly outfitted, you know, in life with huge muscles... And seven-inch serrated knife teeth. Like, this thing is eating meat. That is clear. Yeah. Whether it ran down the meat and killed it itself, or just ate whatever it came across in the landscape, I have no problem believing it could have done both.
0: So you think, in, in as far as that debate is concerned, you're just sort of like, in not in the middle per se, but a, you know, it wanted to eat, it was going to get its food no matter what.
1: I mean, there are a lot of debates in paleontology like this, where there are two sides that fight tooth and nail for their preferred not preferred makes it mm-hmm. sound like they're biased for their view of the data. But I almost always in these debates tend to fall in the middle and just say like a little column, a little column B like, yeah, if it's hungry. It's going to eat. If it finds a dead Parasaurolophus, it's going to nosh on it a little bit. It's the biggest, <laughs> what? it's the biggest thing out there. Who's going to come bother it? You know, yeah. if it, if it finds a dead thing, But at the same time, if it kills something, it's, I I believe, I guess the debate comes down to was T-Rex, and I know you're going to have a a theropod paleontologist on the show shortly, so if he contradicts me, just remember that I taught him everything he knows. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's not true, but I like him a lot and we're friends. So um, I think the debate really comes down to was T-Rex capable of hunting,
0: and I believe that it was.
1: I believe that it had the sensory capacity. I believe that it had the size. I I believe that it had the necessary speed to be some sort of ambush predator, probably not a pursuit predator. So the difference there being like wolves will run down their prey till it's exhausted, whereas a cat will just sneak up and kill it. So wolves being pursuit, cat being ambush. Given the speeds that I think T-Rex was capable of, and it's likely solitary hunting style, I think Mm -hmm. that pursuit predation is likely the more uh optimal route for a t-rex but at the same time i do believe t-rex would have been able to killing it would have been able to kill its own food but i also believe it would have eaten whatever was available opportunistically
0: gotcha and there's no reason anybody shouldn't be able to be uh column a and column b like you're saying
1: well you you say that but you haven't been to the paleontology conferences i've been to oh god is it that bad I mean, it's as bad as no, it gets I, in science. Like, yeah. scientists were, were a, f- a reasonably civil group. That we throw some shade, but it's it's minimal.
0: Mm-hmm. One of my uh, favorite things about the book, Jurassic Park, was when Michael Crichton would start to delve into, uh, you know, the, the world of paleontology. And he talks about how Grant would have gone to seminars and things, and you would see the uh, that there could be a sort of animosity between, you know, the different schools um, of thought. And I thought that was neat how he incorporated that into it. Uh, Jack Horner and Robert Backer are, you know, the famous paleontologists. Um, yep, have know. gone back and forth. Yeah, they've gone back and forth uh, for a while about the issue if T-Rex was uh, or was not a, a scavenger or a hunter. And in, there was a 2013 finding of a T-Rex tooth in a hadrosaur. And uh, some people said that that kind of said it all. That ended the whole debate. T-Rex was a hunter. <laughs> because of, of that one finding, was so. the
1: was the the damage in the Hadrosaur like healed at all? Like, was it showing? I don't
0: know. I think it was still there. Like, there was signs it's of like the key, fact, though, that right? They...
1: Like, yeah. if if it was dead, if it was dead already, the bone damage would look the same. But if it had survived a T Rex attack, you would expect to see some healing. There this is the thing. Like, this is find, how complicated so. it gets, right? Yeah. So that's yeah. the study of that is, is called a uh, pathologies. So it's bone pathologies. And um, for example, a fossil like Big Al, a actual Jurassic mm-hmm. fossil, uh, an Allosaurus from Wyoming has all these injuries, but the injuries show signs of healing. And what that indicates to you as a paleontologist is, oh, this animal survived these injuries because the injuries were healing when it died.
0: So there's so much more to it than, than just a simple question. It's just frustrating that uh, it's, it's got to be such like a gray answer. It can't be finite. But then again, here we are hundreds of millions of years out from the actual, uh, you know, event.
1: But I really like that you said that because one of the biggest lessons I learned earning my undergraduate uh, and even graduate degrees in this subject is the gray area will drive you crazy, but it's where all the fun is. It's being able
0: to ask those questions and having to figure it out,
1: And the gray area is really important. It's really important because when we talk about particle physics and particle physicists may disagree with me and fight me on it. There are times where we're talking about literally one particle interacting with one other particle. Like that's about as fundamental as Hmm. you get, right? Yeah. There's, There's definitely nuance there because there's different velocities and mass and trajectories and all this other stuff, but it's still just one particle interacting with one other particle. What we're talking about is this crazy system that existed tens of millions of years ago where animals are interacting with the ecosystem and the plants that are growing, the weather that's happening, and the sediment that's forming underneath them, and the predation and the scavenging and the opportunism. And it's so crazy complicated, right? And all that complexity might be boiled down into one fossil. And that might be the only fossil you get. And so you you have to account for the gray area you have to say any conclusion we draw has to be fuzzy because we can't make the conclusive argument based on this little data and that's okay you just you, you as a scientist you have to learn to become comfortable with that and it's really it I was is gonna ask. Comfortable.
0: yeah i was gonna ask how do you deal with that frustration the the inability to just
1: you know but i don't know man you guys are a special breed well so, i'll tell you yeah, what it that is. kind of patience I, uh, every, every project that I have seen to its completion started with one question and ended with four or five. Oh God. So, so I would get, so I'd ask a question that I thought was relatively simple, ended that project with four new questions that I'm still working on trying to answer right now.
0: Still. And when was that? When was that project?
1: That was my master's research. So that was published in 2012. Jeez. And
0: you're still working them out.
1: I'm still trying to publish the data that I... I mean, I published some of that data, but I haven't published all of that data from that project yet. So it's a slow process, but it's that whole thing of you see something that doesn't make sense, and you squint, and you get amazed for a moment, and then you start questioning again. And it's that that cycle of there's always another question. And as long as there's another question, the scientist animal is is intrigued by that question and will chase it like, like the carrot on the stick, you know, we'll chase it just like a T-Rex chasing a spinning Ford Explorer. Off an imaginary cliff.
0: All right. Well, I tell you what, now that we've covered uh, that topic and since it's, it's the last day that we've got you here on the show, um, what exactly in your opinion has uh, Jurassic Park done for, kind of bringing dinosaurs back into the mainstream consciousness. Whereas I don't think dinosaurs had really been the hot topic that they have been since this movie came out. Um, What is, what is your take on all that? Do you think that's for better or for worse?
1: You know, it's funny. I think it started off for better and then has shifted into for worse um, as the movies have gotten for worse. And I think humans have always been fascinated by fossils. Like there's something really interesting About seeing the bones of an animal that you can mentally piece together in three dimensions as this formerly living thing, but doesn't look like anything that is out there right now. I I think that's always been something that humans have been amazed and intrigued by, you know. Um, are Are you guys familiar with the whole idea that griffins and the whole griffin mythology is based around protoceratopsian fossils? No, no, not at all. So the, uh, the the ancient Greeks and the ancient Assyrians, which were a uh, Asian Asiatic peoples that lived in along the trading routes that the ancient Greeks used to to get their silk and spices and whatever, and up you know, it traveled through the parts of the Asian steppe and northern Mongolia that would have included protoceratops fossils. So a very common fossil basically looks like a a smaller triceratops without horns. And it's, it's the fossil that we found that's like mid-fight with the Velociraptor when it died. Well, if you look at that animal, if you're a person who's only experienced birds and, you know, mammals, and then you see this four-legged thing with a beak, how are you going to reconstruct that? And it's on top of a mountain, you know? It's it's yeah. way up in in the very treacherous mountain pass or whatever. Uh, you know, your reconstruction of a lion body with an eagle face and maybe some wings is not like an absurd reconstruction. Like it's no more absurd than our earliest Western scientific depictions of dinosaurs as these slow lumbering beasts with tails dragging on the ground and all that other stuff. So, you know, we're talking in the BC times, people have been finding fossils, reconstructing them into animals that they thought could have existed in some way or another and, and getting some things right, you know, if you imagine a Griffin as this active animal that was laying eggs and guarding its nest and stuff, that's probably a more accurate representation of what that animal was doing in life than the slow lumbering tail dragging European dinosaurs. So dinosaurs, I think have always in some sense reflected the pop culture of the time and Jurassic park hit at this beautiful moment where we were ready for these fast, ferocious, smart, active dinosaurs And I think in 1993, it was vital to updating people's perceptions of what dinosaurs were. And the fact that Jurassic World didn't update it again, I thought was a huge disappointment. How how so? I mean, they had the line that that B.D. Wong got to say about, you know, we, we were never recreating dinosaurs. We were just recreating what people thought they wanted to see. But that rang false to me. I think there was an opportunity... For pedagogy, I think there was an opportunity for teaching and learning in that film. Going whole hog on feathers, going whole hog on the updates in terms of color and social structure and activity patterns. I think if you just embraced it in this new movie, Beatty Wong's line as to why are the dinosaurs different could have as easily been would have taken as much screen time for him just to say, well, we've learned a lot. It's been it's been 20 years, and so we yeah. wanted to portray these animals be- more accurately as to what they were. Turns out they're still terrifying. Like, there's this weird cultural backlash that feathers aren't scary. And I don't get it. Because apparently the people saying that have never been cornered by a goose. They've never had a cassowary <laughs> walk into their house. They've never seen an ostrich. Like, birds are not these cuddly, fluffy things to be dismissed as harmless. Like birds are fierce and powerful and dangerous and beautiful in their own right. And birds are dinosaurs. You know, these are, these are living, breathing dinosaurs that we share the world with today. And they're honestly some of the smartest animals around. Don't tell me that a velociraptor can figure out a door when a raven can figure out how to make tools and use those tools that it's made to get food. And that's a dinosaur. Ravens up in Yellowstone national park have learned. They've been training wolves to help the Ravens get food. What? Yeah. Check this out. Ravens. God, are you kidding me? They can fly. So I don't know if you knew this now, but dinosaurs can fly. Terrifying. (laughs) Um, So they can fly up and see if like an animal is dead or dying or on its last legs and they will go and they'll let the, they will inform the wolf pack. They'll go call at the wolf pack, lead the wolf pack as like the eyes in the sky, little drone to the dying bison or elk or moose or deer help and and show the wolf pack where it is. So the wolf pack can bring it down. Once it's down, the Raven gets to feed the wolves won't bother it because it showed them where it was. Jesus. Here's my fan theory. They're domesticating wolves. They're creating their own dogs. So now we've got Jurassic Park 5, human dog versus dinosaur dog. That's pretty terrifying. That is absolutely terrifying. But that's that's what dinosaurs are up to right now. Like, when we we marvel about how smart the Velociraptors are in this movie, like, just look at what birds today are doing. It's incredible.
0: They're forming a union with wolves and making the wolves their army so that they can go do their bidding so that they can just come in and like capitalize on the work that they did not do.
1: Yeah. That's pretty terrifying. Replace that elk with you, a hiker. Oh, my God. No, <laughs> Which, thank you. Okay, wait, actually, no, I shouldn't have said that. I, I'm, I'm sorry. Cause <laughs> a, wolves are great. We should definitely have wolves in the world. Don't make wolves extinct, please. <laughs> oh, well, and, yeah. Yeah, and yeah, please yeah no, absolutely. please go hiking in, in our, our nation's natural places. It's great to go hiking. You will not be attacked by wolves. I'm just trying to illustrate a point about, like, dinosaurs are still here. They're still super smart. They're still interacting with us as mammals. And all that to come back around to the point. I wish Jurassic world had just pushed it further instead of pulling it back. That's all.
0: Yeah. Well, I tell you what, I want to get your take on the future of the franchise and, and maybe your thoughts on Jurassic world as well.
1: Uh, I did not like Jurassic world. Okay. We did a, a special edition podcast on it on science, sort of that people can go find It's special edition 13. Jurassic world has the distinct privilege of coming out the same year. Man of steel did, I believe so it wasn't the worst movie I saw that year. It just it it made me want to rewatch Jurassic Park more than it made me want to rewatch itself. Because in in much the same way people complained about Force Awaken feeling like a shot-for-shot remake of New Hope, Jurassic World felt like a poor man's remake of Jurassic Park. And then there were things about it that just didn't work. I mean, one of the things I really, really enjoy about listening to your guys' show is you talk about like the deleted scenes and the characters that didn't quite make the cut and all these other like little nuances about Jurassic Park, a movie I really, really like. And the cuts that you talk about all seem to make sense. Like they're all justified, right? Like they all Mm -hmm. serve the story being what the story ended up being. But then Jurassic World feels like a movie that was cut from a very problematic shooting script rewritten four or five times cut together from that. And then just none of it really held together. You know, uh, the weird, the, the divorce plot line that goes nowhere, the, the weird teenage boy making creepy eyes and everybody going nowhere. The, the assistant to Bryce Dallas Howard being brutally Brutally murdered for no reason. Like yeah. a character who did not earn the scorn at which her death seems to think that we all wanted her to die horrifically. Um, <laughs> yeah. that bothers me, you know. <laughs> and then there's there's runaway from a T-Rex in high heels. I've never worn high heels, so you know, we talked about whether or not you could outrun a T-Rex. I, I think Usain Bolt could. I don't know if he could in High Heels. I don't know high heels well enough to, to speak to that. I always want these movies to be good. So that's, you know, I think a lot of times it's easy to to say to someone being critical of a thing you love. Well, you're just full of hate and scorn. But while I am, it's also not uh, relevant. (laughs) I hope. (laughs) Uh, I do want these things to be good, (laughs) regardless of my uh, effusion of hate and scorn. All right. So now that we've covered
0: um, this minute, more or less, uh, what has this movie uh, meant to you?
1: I mean, that's a great question. Uh, it's a great entry into the world of paleontology. You know, for all of its faults, for all of its brushing a light bit of dirt off of a fossil, which you guys criticized very well in in your own minutes covering that. I, I really enjoy this movie. It's an exciting movie. It's a fun movie. And I think that this movie does actually a pretty good job of balancing, like, oh, these are dangerous animals, but they're still beautiful animals, and they're still worthy of our awe admiration and respect while still being viewed as dangerous animals and it's amazing that it does that with puppets and cgi and so i think ultimately it's it's a it's a good thing and it it forwards the conversation or at the very least starts the conversation about what paleontology means to the general public
0: awesome well dude thank you so much for coming on for these last few days we've had a hell of a time getting to know uh, a little bit more about you know where this film kind of gets it right and gets it wrong, and also about how we have a lot to fear in terms of birds now training wolves to kill their prey for them. Yes. That was pretty terrifying.
1: <laughs> yeah, birds are birds are real smart people. I mean, like, yeah. there's. I, I can't think of another animal on the planet that you can have an actual conversation with out loud. Like, you can, you can sign language with a chimp or a gorilla, oh, but you goodness. can just talk to a bird. Apparently. And they'll understand you, and they'll hear you, <laughs> and they'll talk so, back.
0: So watch what you say. Well, Ryan, tell uh, tell our listeners where they can find you online.
1: I'm on Twitter at Haupt. Uh, I tweet about my love of science, my love of food, my love of drink. Uh, I also do a podcast, Science Sort of, at sciencesortof.com. If you want to just get in touch with me directly as a person, RyanHaupt.com. That's R Y A N H A U P T dot com is my personal website. I've got a contact page on there. Get in touch with me. Honestly, like it sounds cheesy. It sounds insincere, but I really, really love talking about this stuff as Brady can attest. Like I, I will get into it with you. So please do not hesitate to reach out to me. If something I said uh, inspired you, angered you, riled you up, did whatever, like let's, let's get into it. Let's have a good time with it. Um, I, I promise I'll be nice and, and we'll just have fun. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well,
0: with that said, we're going to go ahead and close things out here. For Ryan, I am Brady, and we thank you so much for listening this week. And until next time, hold on to your butts. Jurassic Park Minute is a fan-supported podcast. If you like the podcast, then leave us a review on iTunes. You can contact us at Minute at gmail.com and visit us online at JurassicParkMinute.com, Facebook.com slash JurassicParkMinute, and Twitter.com slash JurassicMinute. You've been listening to a Pele Media podcast. For premium content and exclusive podcasts, visit us at patreon.com slash Media. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash Media and follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash Media.